Well, as we continue our worship by coming now to the Word of the Lord, I just want to remind you last week we were all out of town, so today we're going to return to this study of the book of 1 Corinthians, and in doing so, we're going to come back to the topic of sex. And I just want to give you kind of the experience of the pretty much every week preacher guy. As you work your way through 1 Corinthians, it's kind of like, good grief, could you give me an easier topic to deal with one after the next? And there's no topic, really, more difficult than this. And so I just want to own that and put it on the table. I want you to think about it with me a minute. Okay, this is really personal. Is there any more private area of your life than this? No. It's very sensitive. We're hurt here. We're bruised here. We don't want anybody to touch this. It feels massively invasive and therefore incredibly threatening. It's like you're reaching into this and I'm very uncomfortable about that. Why? Because there's all kinds of wounds. There's all kinds of hurt. There's all kinds of guilt. There's all kinds of shame. We are riddled with mistakes in this area so much so that it's psychically difficult for us to address it all. So painful that I don't want to go there. We sent out an email two weeks ago before that Sunday and again this week. And we kind of said, hey, listen, if you're a parent, you know, we're going to be having a little bit more of a mature conversation. Certainly it's not going to be graphic by any means. But we do have KidQuest for grades fifth grade and down. And I remember thinking to myself, man, on the one hand, you know, if I'm a parent, no surprises, right? Like I want to get that email. I want to know these things. I'd like to be able to prepare for that and send my child to KidQuest. But the pastoral part of me is going, I know and even understand why that there are going to be people who get this email and go, yeah, I think this is a good day to go fishing. Or anything else. Because I don't want to talk about this. But I'm going to tell you plainly, we need to talk about this. Desperately do we need to talk about it. It's like if there's a topic, period, that we need to talk about, guess which one it is? It's this one. And we need to talk about it because it's so full of shame and hurt and mistakes and tragedy and all kinds of things that have happened to us, all kinds of things that we've done. Again, as I said two weeks ago, 90% at least of the regret in this room deal with this topic. And we can't offload that on our own. We've got to walk back into it, gather the whole of it up, and bring it authentically to the only one who can and does heal us from it, forgive us from it, make us authentically clean from it, and then leave it there with Him, really and truly not taking it back upon ourselves, recognizing that it is finished, is proclaimed over this, and experiencing the freedom and relief and even joy that comes from knowing that. My goodness, do we need to talk about this and in addition to that, as we talked about two weeks ago. Look, this is just one of those areas, guys, where we as followers of Jesus ought to be living lives that don't look a little bit slightly, maybe kind of different from everybody else, but no, 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 radically different, markedly different, noticeably different than the lives of people who do not believe in Jesus. But here's the truth. That's very often not the case. And so what Paul's doing in this last part of 1 Corinthians 6, and today as we pick it up in 1 Corinthians 7, for the whole of this chapter, there's a sense in which he's coming to us and going, okay, I'm a little confused because this is an area of life in which your lives should look a lot different from the lives of people who don't believe in Jesus. They don't. So what's the problem? Wait, he says, I know the answer to this. The problem is bad theology. 
The problem is that what you're missing is a proper understanding, biblically speaking, of sex and of marriage and of singlehood and of celibacy. And I'm sorry, but who better to go to to get a better understanding of these things than the one who himself created them and created us? Kind of makes sense. So what Paul is seeking to do is to cure the deficiencies in our understanding of these areas biblically so that then by the power of the Spirit and in community with one another, we can experience that freedom, that forgiveness, and we can learn to live different kinds of lives, lives that are not restricted by God's Word, but are set free by God's Word. For that's the irony. You see, we look at the sexual ethic and our culture looks at the sexual ethic of the Bible, and we'll get to it in a second. And it's just ridiculous from their perspective. Good grief, that sounds enslaving. And then in their freedom, in our freedom, we find ourselves enslaved. More so than on any other issue, period. When in fact the irony is that in submitting to the one who authored this powerful thing called sex, we find freedom and not slavery. So, two weeks ago, Paul began by began to give us this proper understanding, and he began by addressing a crowd that they had in their church, and a crowd that we have in our church and in the church at large. And what is that crowd? What was their thinking? Their thinking was, hey man, you can have sex with anyone you want. That's the, hey man, you can have sex with anyone you want crowd. Okay? They had those guys. Sex is just a physical thing. It's like eating a sandwich. It's like going to the bathroom. It's just, that's all that it is. And Paul said, Really? Does eating a sandwich wreck your conscience? Does it? You know, I mean, like what you had for lunch, is that afflicting you like 30 years later? Is it? Listen, we know that's not the case, don't we? He came and said, oh, no, you don't understand. It is precious. It is sacred It is the physical expression of the most intimate relationship that you can have as a human being with another human being, and that is marriage. And what is marriage? It's a picture of the gospel. We talked about that two weeks ago. But it's also a picture of the Trinity. It's the two shall become one in every way, including sexually. That's the physical expression of that statement. Who is God? He is three, but He is one. There is so much going on with this topic that Paul tried to bring some understanding to so we can understand the magnitude and the gravity of what it is that we're talking about and why it is that God comes to us when we're going, hey man, you can have sex with anyone you want. It's just like eating a sandwich. What do you want for lunch? You know, who are you going to sleep with today? I don't know. Really? And he says, let me tell you something about this incredibly sacred, this incredibly holy, this incredibly powerful, and you know that it's powerful. You know it thing called sex. All right, here's the ethic. You ready? It's good that you're seated. Sex is for married people, and marriage is defined by the Bible as the union of one man and one woman. And I do not say that cavalierly. I say that knowing that is a hard, hard thing to receive. But there it is. And there is freedom in it, and there is slavery outside of it. So he started with the you-can-have-sex-with-anyone-you-want crowd two weeks ago. And he gave them the sexual ethic and talked about the value of it and what it's all about. But then today, he's going to pick up the conversation by talking to the sex-with-anyone-at-all 
even within marriage, is bad crowd. And some of us kind of at least feel that way. Like, I don't know if we processed it that way, but I think we feel that way. And I, I think that those of us who feel that way are typically those of us who maybe were raised in wonderful Christian homes with well-intended and incredible parents and went to wonderful Christian schools with well-intended and incredible teachers and who somehow got the message ingrained into them, mostly because our parents and teachers and everyone else around us were afraid that we were going to mess up in this area, which then we did and just made it even worse, okay? But they were so fearful that sex is dirty. It's, it's painted with shame. It's, it's painted with guilt. And, and even if we didn't mess it up, we kind of enter in with this, can I do this now? Is this okay? Is this, like, is this bad? Is this, is this, and, and Paul's going to say, oh my goodness, let's fix that. This is a wonderful, gracious, amazing gift that within that ethic have added. I mean, just to put it bluntly, <laughs> this is a great thing. Don't miss out. And Paul does this in the same way that he addressed this other crowd, meaning he quotes them, and he can quote them because he's received a letter from them. They've raised these issues for him. They've said, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? Now, that's different from what we do. That's to their credit, not to ours. Here's what we do. We, don't, we, we get the email and skip out. We, we hear the sexual ethic and just shut down. It's like, oh, good grief, how much longer is this going to last? Because now I'm not going to hear anything he says. You lost me with the ethic. These people at least were saying, okay, theologically, we're trying to find a way to honor the Lord here. And here are some of the issues that we are working through as a church. We've got this crowd over here, this is what they're thinking. And we've got this crowd over here, and this is what they're thinking. Paul, what do you think? That is the humility that comes from the gospel where you realize, hey, you know what? I don't just need to be saved from my sin. I need to be saved from myself. I keep making a mess of me. And in no area greater than this one. So you know what, Lord? Maybe you have something to say. What is it? Receive his wisdom. So Paul quotes these guys. He says, listen, I know what you're thinking. Here's what it is. Now, let me give you a better understanding. We pick up our study in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1, where Paul says this. He said, now concerning the matters about which you wrote to me in the letter that I received from some of your very own people who I've also dialogued with. And now he quotes them. Here's what you're saying, he says. It is good for a man, you ready, not to have sexual relations with a woman, period. That's it. Like, I mean, even if you're married. And so then their thinking went something like this. Sex is an evil passion of the body that, as the Spirit-filled people of Jesus, we shouldn't do. We shouldn't indulge. Therefore, number one, if you're married, they're reasoning, and Paul deals with all this reasoning, I mean, it sure is tempted to have sex if you're married, and so, like, then should we get divorced? Or if you're engaged, should you get married? Because, again, it's tempting to have sex if you're married. So should you follow through with that? Or if you're single, should you ever get married? Should you look to get married? Should that be a desire that's authentically, you know, given from the Lord to you? Like, is that something to be pursued, or is that not to be pursued? Because if you get married, it sure is tempting to have sex if you get married. And if it's bad, which it isn't, and that's the problem with their thinking, what do we do? So Paul takes up all of this in this really long 40-verse chapter, and he does three things. First, he affirms sex within marriage, and so powerfully, like I just want to read it and get out of its way, okay? It's amazingly strong. Secondly, 
He discourages divorce. Within this context, he's going, yeah, no, this is not a good reason to do that. And then thirdly, and a few times, he affirms singlehood. But only if you can be single and be able to be celibate, which he indicates not everybody has the gift of being able to do. So again, quoting the sex with anybody is bad crowd. Paul says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote to me in the letter that I received from some of your very own people, and in which you claim that, here it is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman even inside of marriage. Paul says, okay, now let me respond to that. But please understand, this is an add-on to everything I said and that I've already rehearsed two weeks ago at the end of chapter 6 about it being precious and so forth. In addition to that, He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, that is to say to having sex with someone that you're not married to, each man who can't control himself sexually and who therefore can't live a single life without giving way to those passions should have his own wife. And each woman who likewise can't control herself sexually and who therefore can't live a single life without giving way to those passions should have her own husband. And more than that, within the context of marriage, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. You're like, what what does that mean exactly? What it says literally in the Greek language is far more graphic than this. It says the husband should give to his wife what he owes to her sexually. It's the language of indebtedness. The husband is a sexual debtor to his wife he owes her, and likewise the wife should give to her husband what she owes him sexually, and here's why. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's reciprocal. So then do not deprive one another sexually, Paul says. My goodness, what are you people doing, he's saying to them, and maybe to us. Except perhaps, maybe, under this one particular arrangement, except perhaps by agreement, but even then only for a limited period of time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, quickly is the point, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control to which Paul adds, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this last part. In other words, he's going, listen, I'm trying to figure out why, why you would deprive it each other of this. And the only thing I can come up with is, all right, if you declared a fast in order to pray, but you don't have to do that, he's saying. That's not a command. So what do you think? Because I think all the women are going, clearly a man wrote this. And, um, And a man wrote it. A single celibate man. But he wrote it, and all the men are going, I didn't know this was in the Bible. You know, what else is in here, right? (laughs) You want to post this on your door or something. (laughs) But don't miss the heart of what he's saying. What he's commanding is sexual selflessness, in which our attitude is not, hey, you owe me, and now I'm here to collect, you know? But in which our attitude is, I owe you, and I'm available to you. I'm willing to pay. And I think that sometimes, yeah, that's going to mean saying yes when you'd rather say no. But sometimes that's going to mean you for the sake of the one who you prefer above yourself saying no to you. (laughs) Because maybe now isn't a good time. It's not what can I get. It's what can I give. It's not how can you best serve me. It's how can I best serve you. If that's yes, that's yes. If that's no right now, then that's what it is. 
It's a sexual selflessness, and it's not a suggestion. So then far from agreeing with the sex as any, with anyone as bad crowd, Paul affirms that sex within marriage is not just good, it's very good and indeed. It's obligatory. We're debtors one to the other, and actually that's to be celebrated. Like that's an amazingly awesome thing. However, he then adds this in verse 7. Now listen to this. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Again, what is that? Single? Celibate and able to remain so because he has been given the gift of celibacy by God, which is what he makes clear next. He says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so I think in this context, in this conversation, he said, okay, some of us have this gift of celibacy and authentically that's a gift, like it's a good thing. He prefers it. We'll see this. But for those who don't, we have the gift and it's an authentic gift of sex within marriage. Each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. And so then he just begins to work that out. He says, to the unmarried and to the widows, to those who are single, he says, I say that it is good for them to remain single. As I am, Paul says, but if they cannot exercise self-control sexually because they don't have this same unique gift of celibacy that I, Paul, have, well then, they should get married, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And now he takes up the topic of divorce because, again, they were thinking, well, wait a minute, sex is dirty. If you get married, it's pretty tempting, right? So maybe you just should get divorced then, and then you won't have to deal with this temptation, at least as directly. And he's like, guys, come on. He says, to the married, and who he's addressing first are Christians who are married. Christian husband, Christian wife. He says, to Christians who are married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. He quotes Jesus as the idea, or he gives a synopsis, rather, of the teachings of Jesus. Not a complete synopsis. But he says, here's what the Lord says on the topic. The Christian wife should not separate from her Christian husband. She should not divorce him. That's what that means. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the Christian husband should not divorce his Christian wife. Now, I do think that it's helpful and even needful to point out at this point that Jesus does allow, he gives a biblical ground for divorce, and that ground is adultery. Now, you don't have to get divorced if adultery occurs within the context of your relationship, and many of you know that personally. But I think that speaks to the sacred and exalted nature of sex, does it not? This isn't like eating a sandwich. Hey, where did you have lunch? I ate lunch at J. Alexander's. Well, that's it. We're done. I'm going to divorce you. No. When you sleep with somebody who is not your husband or wife, Christ says it's permissible to break this union that you entered into before God and every significant person in your life and hers. Or his. Sex is not a little thing. We all know that and then deny it in favor of our passions and then enslave ourselves. And we've all done it to some degree. And so now he continues and he says, to the rest, meaning to believers who are married to unbelievers. That was happening. People were coming to faith in Christ, but their husband or wife didn't yet. He says, I say not the Lord because the Lord never addressed that circumstance. His teaching didn't comprehend that. That if any brother, any Christian man, has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any Christian woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, 
she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy. He is set apart in a really unique way by means of his relationship to this Christian woman who's come to faith in Christ in his home, and he is now watching the gospel transform his wife. He's made holy by her testimony is the idea. He's set apart in a unique way. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the testimony of his Christian wife and the unbelieving wife, same deal, is made holy because of the testimony of her Christian husband. Otherwise, he says, your children, the children of a believer and an unbeliever would be unclean, but as it is, they too are holy for they too are welcome in the church. They're baptized alongside everybody else's kids. They're raised with the same teaching. They experience the same gospel. But if the unbelieving partner, he says, separates, now this is the other ground for divorce, okay? Let it be so. For in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, whether God will use your testimony to bring him to faith in Jesus? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So then when it comes to marriage, you may divorce, but only under two conditions. Number one, adultery. Number two, abandonment by an unbeliever. That's the way that it's typically phrased. But it's not that simple. I mean, first of all, you don't have to, so throw that out. And secondly, what is adultery? Because you need to define that. Is it more than, or can it be, simply sleeping with somebody who is not the person you're married to? What is abandonment? I mean, can I abandon you but still live in the house? Can I abandon you and still want to remain married? Can I abandon you and continue to be legally connected? What is abandonment? Can I constructively abandon you? Can I abandon you in every meaningful way but leaving? Is that abandonment? And what is a believer or an unbeliever? And I know that seems like it would be a little bit more clear, but it's not necessarily, at least not in every case. Because you might have, and I'll just use a guy because I'm a guy, so I'll use a guy as the example. You might have a guy who professes to be a Christian, but he's abusive to his wife. And the church gets involved and says, hey man, you can't do that. And here's a prescription. You need to move out of your house. You guys need to go to counseling. You're going to go to some marriage weekend together. You're going to work in relationship with us. We're going to walk together with you and create a plan by which you get out of this abuse in your home. And he might say, forget it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to listen to a thing you say. And then the church could move all the way through the disciplinary channels until they, in fact, say, you know what? You are living like an unbeliever, and now we're going to treat you like one. We're going to put you outside of our community. We are excommunicating you from the church. Can that wife now say, this is abandonment by an unbeliever? Can she? It's a case-by-case deal. So it's not as black and white. It's not as simple as it seems. But here's what you can't do and what Paul's actually speaking to. You can't divorce your husband or wife because of a wrong-headed understanding of sex that says that sex with anyone is bad. And if you do that, he says, you can't get remarried. And so what has Paul done? He's affirmed sex within marriage. He's discouraged divorce. And in a moment, he will once again affirm singlehood. But first, in verse 17, he's going to give us sort of the organizing principle for the whole of this chapter. He works everything out around this principle. He says this, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has, what? Assigned to him and to which God has called him. What is he recognizing? He's recognizing that God providentially controls all things, including my life and yours. 
So I'm married and it's not by mistake. You're single and it's not by mistake. You're engaged, it's not by mistake. God is providentially governing over my life and your life and the lives of everyone else. The Westminster Confession comes to us and says rightly, meaning biblically, that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. You have to keep that in mind. Paul says, okay, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. And to which God has called him, this is my rule, he says, in all the churches. And then here's how he applies the rule throughout this chapter. If you've done your personal worship, you know. He comes to the married and he says, you're married, great, stay married. He comes to the engaged and says, you're engaged, fantastic, get married. Unless, unless you can remain single and chaste. In which case, singlehood would be preferable. He says to the single, stay single unless you have to get married. He's not denigrating marriage, but he certainly is exalting singlehood. And you say, well, what's up with that? Because Paul blesses marriage massively, not just here, but in Ephesians, elsewhere. He doesn't have a low opinion of it. What he's doing is what he's always doing. He's measuring the things of this life and everything in them off against the eternal life to come. And he's coming to me and he's coming to you on every issue, but on this one today. And he's saying, all right, look, here's the deal. This life that you're living right now, really short. I know it doesn't feel really short, but measure it against eternity and all of a sudden it's the blink of an eye. It's really short. And this mission, this gospel mission that Christ has given to us, nobody else but to his church, It's our mission, and it has an impact for all of eternity, for us and for other people. Okay, it is unspeakably huge. So here is what you ought to do, and it's perfectly reasonable. You need to organize your life in such a way as to disentangle you from the things of this life so that you can become as entangled as possible with this incredibly great mission in the little bitty amount of time that God allots to you sovereignly in this life. And if you're married, there are a lot of entanglements, wonderful entanglements. But if you're single, you have more time, you have more energy, you have more ability, do you not? And it's just kind of self-evident. And he explains that very clearly beginning in verse 32. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. That's his primary focus, how to please the Lord. But the married man is also is the point. It's not like married men are not anxious about that. But they're also anxious about worldly things like how to support your family, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the, married, or the unmarried or betrothed, meaning the single or engaged woman, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is also anxious about worldly things like how to take care of her family, how to please her husband. I say this, Paul says, for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. If God calls you to be married, get married. That's not the point but to promote good order and to secure your what? Undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the reason that Paul prefers singlehood. He's going, life is short, the mission is great. If you can be single and devote that extra amount to the mission, do it if not, then get married. And you say, all right, but what if you're single and you desire to be married, but God just hasn't brought you that right person? And what if he never brings you that right person? I mean, what do you do in the meantime as you long for that person who never never comes? Well, in obedience to God's Word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in community with one another, you pursue holiness in this area of sexuality while you wait for the God who providentially orders things to bring or not 
to bring you the right one. And you say, all right, Tom, but what if you're gay? And you're simply not attracted to the opposite sex because I've been listening carefully. And again, God's sexual ethic is sex is for married people. And the Bible defines that as one man and one woman. You know, I mean, like if you're gay, you're thinking that just rules me out, man. So now what do I do? Because I desire companionship. I desire to express myself and my sexuality just like anybody else. It's true, isn't it? And here's what I think we do. I'm going to give you the sexual ethic. I'm going to answer the question directly in a second. But I think it's real easy for those of us who are heterosexual, who are married, who maybe don't have gay children or gay friends or gay family members or people that we love, who really wrestle with this, who have never sat down with somebody and in tears said, let me tell you what the answer to this is. And I know that it's going to hurt when you hear it. We just are very cavalier oftentimes about, the, well, just give the answer and let's move on. Come on, i got to get in the car with my kids. And I, That's not even human. Think about that for a minute. That's certainly not humble. That does not recognize your own brokenness, my own brokenness, in this same general category of sex and sexuality. We sit down with our brother and sister and say, your calling is the same as the single person. It is by God's power, His Spirit in community with God's people. And the church needs to do a lot better job of providing that community, incidentally, to pursue holiness, to accept that this is God's calling in your life and to lead a celibate single life. Just like Paul did. Just like Jesus did, incidentally. And, you know, that is a heavy cross. We need to own that. But I want to say that it's not the heaviest cross. It's not the only heavy cross that the Lord gives to us, guys. Again, that same single celibate person who never gets asked or never finds the right one, same cross. What about the physically disabled who is going to live a life that is asexual? And all of the implications of that for every relationship that he or she enters into. Same cross. What about the person who marries the person that everyone in their family, mom, dad, and then all of their friends said, listen, this is a really bad idea. What about that person? And now they're stuck in a joyless, sexless, oftentimes contentious, lonely marriage that perhaps they have no biblical grounds to get out of. That may actually be a heavier cross. They might gladly trade places. It's a heavy cross. But let me read to you what a man named Sam Albury says. He is a gay Christian author and pastor. And I love this statement. And it speaks to every one of us. To every follower of Jesus, he says, every Christian is called to costly sacrifice. Denying yourself does not mean tweaking your behavior here and there. It is saying no, listen to this, to your deepest sense of who you are for the sake of Christ. To take up a cross is to declare your life as you have known it forfeit. It is laying it down your life for the very reason that your life, as it turns out, is not yours at all. It belongs to Jesus. He made it, and through His death, He has bought it. To which He then adds, He says, Ever since I have been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this to me. Now listen, Quote, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, end quote, as though I, he says, have more to give up than they do. 
But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. And if someone thinks that the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. There it is. I think he totally nails it. Here's the reality about all of us. We are so egocentric about life. It's unbelievable. And as a result, we just assume falsely, by the way, that the universe, that God, that His purposes, that the world, that everyone revolves around us in our own personal pursuit of happiness. It's very far from the truth. We assume as well, by the way, that our happiness will be found in the gifts of God. Like sex, like marriage. Well, I'll just never be happy without that, as opposed to God Himself. And so then here's what we do. We fail to realize that the very crosses that God gives us to bear in this life, that we resent, that we resist, that we despise openly, are the very instruments, ironically, that God is using to draw us daily to the one in whom alone true happiness can be found. can only be found in Christ. And it's the crosses that drive us to Him. As I said, you know, Jesus lived a single celibate life, and incidentally, so did Paul. And they were not incomplete in their humanity. Would you agree with that? Jesus is an incomplete man because He never expressed Himself sexually, really. Is that right? Because He never had a physical human bride in His life, and they didn't have a, that He's incomplete. No, He's perfect. He is the perfect man. And incidentally, He does have a bride. It's very different. But it's his church. And so he can authentically come to the single person. And I understand the differences. I really do. And he can come authentically to the, to the single gay person. And he can say, hey, listen, I've not deprived you of family. I've made you a part of my family. Both in this little wisp of life. And for all of eternity. My spirit is your companion. I am your companion. We are your companion. And we need to do a better job of being good companions. But, but he hasn't left us lonely in that sense. And I want to say also that I think that Jesus and Paul, but I'll talk about Jesus, uniquely identifies with the homosexual man or woman. And here's why I say that, because everyone, and everyone is a big word. You know, we say that all the time. You never say this to me, and everyone thinks, nah, that's not true. Let's say that this is true, okay? Everyone in Jesus' day got married. Not him. So now work that through with me for a minute, because according to the little town, hear that, little village that Jesus lived in, he was already an odd little boy. He was a son of fornication, so they thought. I mean, who really bought the whole no God made me pregnant story in that town? Anyone? Joseph, who else? An angel had to appear to him. So So he's the son of fornication. He's the bastard child of Mary. He is born with that indignity. That's a fact. And he's perfect. How weird must he have been from the perspective of everybody else? Seriously. Plato, 400 years before Jesus was born, said, here's what will happen if the perfectly just man ever authentically entered into our human existence. We will reject him. We will abuse him. We will mock him. We will spit on him. And, you ready? We will crucify him. It's like reading from Isaiah. 
So here's the perfect little boy growing up in the small town, the bastard son of Mary, who's perfect. That doesn't make others feel good about themselves necessarily. So he's odd already. And now upon his bar mitzvah, he comes to his mom and dad and says, okay, listen, it is not the will of God for me to be married. He's going to give me a different kind of a bride. Well, the word about that leaks out in the town too, does it not? So what do they whisper about this already seemingly odd little boy? Doesn't he like girls? The Lord understands in ways that are shocking and surprising and stunning and marvelous. He brings himself. He offers you that. You say, all right. Last question. What do I do with all my failures in this area of my life? Because if I had read the dadgum email, and from now on I will, I would have played golf. Like, you know, <laughs> a little windy for fishing. But really, like, I don't like to talk about this. What do I do with all of this? You package it all up. You bring it to Christ. The one who, as I said two weeks ago, hung naked on the cross. And then you leave it there. And you stop beating yourself up. You stop failing to forgive you yourself for the things that He has forgiven you of. You stop in a sense saying, well, I know the Son of God was crucified and died for me, but I I think I need to punish myself some more for this because I... No, you don't. He has forgiven you. You forgive you. You realize that He hung naked to cover over your failures, over your shame, over your guilt, to heal your hurts. And as I said two weeks ago, you do that drawing encouragement Again, from the fact that one of the primary pictures of the church, of God's people in the Bible, is that of the whore who's not just forgiven but made pure. So there is Paul's proper understanding of sex and marriage and singlehood and celibacy, and it's awkward and uncomfortable and personal and wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful. So the Bible says, I hold before you life and death. Which will you choose? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for our Savior. Particularly on this topic, I pray that You would give us faith to see Him for who He is, to gather up our junk and deposit it all at His feet, and to recognize that when the Son of God says that it is finished, that indeed it is finished, that is the voice that spoke the worlds into existence. It's paid, it's reconciled, it's done It's over. And give us the humility in our brokenness there to take up the wisdom of the Lord and to begin to learn to live it. To deal with the things that in this area of our lives, perhaps more than in any other, enslave us. Lord, set us free. Help us to realize that ironically, that which looks like bondage is freedom and that which looks like freedom is ruin. Do these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.